Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, cardio nerds. It's time to get your reps in and learn cardiology one episode at a time. Well, this episode is super special and marks the very first of a brand new comprehensive adult congenital heart disease series co-chaired by doctors Agnes Coxo, Dan Clark, and Josh Safe. We thank our collaborators at the Adult Congenital Heart Association, the CHIP Network, and Heart University. You can find links to these incredible organizations working tirelessly to improve the lives of those living with ACHD in the episode description and stay tuned to the very end for an important message from the ACHA. Remember, friends, that CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. And hey, help other CardioNerds find us by rating and reviewing the show. Now, grab your backpacks and join us on this ACHD journey as we get down and nerdy with this episode's ACHD fellow lead, Dr. Katia Bravo, and master of ACHD, or as she likes to be called, a genuine kanji nerd, the Dr. Carol Warns, in an important discussion about pregnancy and congenital heart disease. As you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out the illustrative accompanying infographic developed by Drs. Katia Bravo and Teodora Donison, which is also reviewed by Dr. Candice Silversides. So I am so very excited to welcome you guys today to the ACHD series episode, which focuses on caring of this patient population in pregnancy. We have an incredible group of people joining us today. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Katia Bravo, who's an ACHD fellow in training at UCLA. She grew up in Lima, Peru. She completed her medical school at Universidad Nacional Mayor Don Marco. She graduated from the internal medicine program at the University of Rochester in New York, and then she did her cardiovascular fellowship at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston in Texas. She's a mother as well and understands firsthand how it is to feel short of breath during pregnancy, and she carried her pregnancy at 15,000 feet above sea level while she was working at a mining camp in the highlands of Peru. Welcome, Katia. Thank you. Thank you, Agnes, for having me here. Oh, boy, I can't believe eight years have passed since the days living at high altitude. That was certainly challenging, but I'm really grateful because it gave me a great learning opportunity to empathize more with my pregnant patients. Those days climbing the mountains seem far away now, but it's a good reminder that the physiological changes that pregnancy carries can have serious consequences in women with pre-existing heart disease. In this episode, we will review many of the layers that appropriate longitudinal pregnancy care entails from preconception counseling to postpartum care in patients with congenital heart disease. I'm extremely honored to be here today with Dr. Carol Worms, who is a trailblazer in adult congenital heart disease. She is the founder of the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Clinic at Mayo Clinic, which she led for 25 years. Dr. Worms is professor of medicine with dual appointments in the Structural Heart Disease Department of Cardiovascular Medicine, as well as the Division of Pediatric Cardiology at Mayo Clinic. She completed her MBBS at Newcastle upon Tyne Medical School in the United Kingdom and was a registrar in cardiology at both the London Chess Hospital and the National Heart Hospital in London. She was made a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians in 2005. 
She has spoken extensively on many, many topics in ACHD on both a national and international scale, as well as published several books and more than 200 papers in prominent peer-reviewed journals. She has served as an editorial board member of the American Journal of Cardiology, Circulation, and Heart. In 2008, she chaired the first American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association guidelines for the management of adults with congenital heart disease. She has also held multiple leadership roles in addition to serving on many committees of the ACC and served on their board of trustees for seven years. In 2016, she received the Distinguished Fellowship Award from the ACC. We're really pleased with you being here. Thank you, Dr. Warrens. Dr. Warrens, this is such a pleasure. I fell in love with your lectures in the NAO board review and just learned like pearl after pearl after pearl. And let me tell you, there's nothing that gets a young cardiac nerd as excited about adult congenital heart disease than learning from you. And this is just amazing, amazing deja vu. And I have to say this, honest to God, I actually used one of your pearls this morning regarding a patient who has an ASD and there's a question about their pulmonary hypertension, whether or not to fix that. So Definitely, definitely, definitely love that you're here today with us. And it's a real treat and consider me a huge fan. Thank you. I'm glad I've got one. Oh, yeah. No, no, you have many. Speaking of fans, Katya, I hear you have some great cases for discussion in our Cardinerds ACHD clinic. Why don't you take it away? Thank you, Dan. Yes, this episode will build upon prior episodes launched in the Cardiobstetrics and ACHD CardioNerd series, so I highly recommend listening to them. You guys made a wonderful job in those series as well. So let's jump into our first patient. Her name is Joyce. She is a 25-year-old woman with pulmonic stenosis who underwent a balloon pulmonary valvuloplasty at age 2 and subsequently developed moderate pulmonary regurgitation. She does not exercise regularly, but is able to climb two flights of stairs. She has no dyspnea, palpitations, abdominal bloating, or lower extremity edema. She takes no medications, and her physical exam is remarkable for a 2 out of 6 diastolic murmur, best heard in the right lower sternal border. She has a recent echocardiogram that shows moderate pulmonary regurgitation, normal biventricular size and systolic function, and estimated right ventricular systolic pressure of 20 millimeters of mercury. A cardiac MRI from a year ago showed a right ventricular and diastolic volume index of 90 mL per meter square, right ventricular and systolic volume index of 38 millimeters per meter square, and a pulmonic regurgitant fraction of 30%. She recently got married and is interested in becoming pregnant. Thank you so much, Katya, for that wonderful introduction to this patient. Can I just ask you, what is your general approach in such a patient who is contemplating pregnancy? Thank you, Agnes. So when we encounter patients with congenital heart disease who are contemplating pregnancy, we have several missions. The first one will be to provide a prognosis as accurate as possible for the mother and the baby using risk certification tools and minimizing drugs that could be teratogenic. The second mission could be to organize antepartum care with high-risk obstetrics team. Our third mission is to discuss the location, timing, and mode of delivery for these patients. The fourth mission that we have is to discuss alternative options for carrying a pregnancy in women who are at extreme risk. And the fifth mission is to discuss postpartum contraception. In order to address our first goal regarding risk certification, we have to incorporate not only the patient's anatomical and physiological clinical status, but also the hemodynamic changes that pregnancy carries in order to predict what the pregnancy outcome might be. Yeah, that was great, Katia. 
I love the systematic approach. And just to help put her pregnancy into context, in the context of her valvular heart disease, this might be a good time to stop and review the physiologic changes that we come across in pregnancy. We did discuss some of these in episode 111 as part of the cardioobstetric series with Dr. Grima Sharma. Yes, I agree, Amy. That episode was fantastic. I recommend it. Everyone should listen to it. So doing a rapid review throughout pregnancy, we know that cardiac output increases by 50%, blood volume increases by 30 to 50% approximately, heart rate and oxygen consumption also increases by approximately 15 to 20%, and the systemic vascular resistance decreases to allow increased uterine flow. All of these changes constitute, of course, a stress for the heart. And some patients are at a higher risk for complications than others. When we talk about our classifications for risk stratification, something that comes to our minds is the most recent 2018 ACC, AHA, ACHD guidelines. In these guidelines, for the first time, there is an approach to classify every patient, including their anatomical and physiological status. So translating this evidence into our patient, she would have a class 2C given her moderate pulmonic regurgitation. Great. Thank you so much, Katia. I think we're often told that pregnancy is sort of a stress test on women for the heart, but I'm glad that you sort of details as to what the stressors are. In regards to this ACHD classification, can you translate for us what the 2C criteria would be for this patient? Sure. In the AP classification released in these guidelines, we will find Roman numerals indicating the level of anatomical congenital complexity from one to three, one being simple, two, moderate, and three, great complexity. These Roman numerals are followed by a letter from A to D, indicating the physiological stage at present. A is an excellent physiological state, B, mildly altered, C, moderately altered, and D, significantly altered. Thinking of this as a report card, maybe somewhat helpful for a few cardiologists. I think of it as my scores during high school, not really a D, probably a C, maybe an A. <laughs> Just kidding. I was always an A. <laughs> the physiological stage is indeed a combined assessment of several factors, including many clinical factors like NYHA class symptoms, exercise capacity, but also other parts of the history like arrhythmias or hemodynamic, or end-organ sequela. With an AP classification to C, we will find a patient with repaired or unrepaired moderate complexity lesions with either moderate or greater valvular or ventricular dysfunction, NYHA class 3 symptoms, arrhythmias controlled with treatment, hemodynamically significant shunts, pulmonary hypertension less than severe, or end-organ dysfunction responsive to therapy. As you can see, when we use the AP classification, we are using the criteria with the highest severity. And in the case of Joyce, the moderate or greater valvular dysfunction drives her physiological classification. Of course, we have to highlight that the nature of the physiological components is super dynamic, and especially so during pregnancy. That was great, Katya. And I definitely would have taken you for a straight-A student. I've got to say your daughter has quite the super mom to look up to. So thanks for that awesome explanation. Thank you, Amit. Dr. Wars, there have been a few different classification schemes to help us predict risk for cardiovascular outcomes and risk during pregnancy. These tools include the modified WHO classification and risk factors derived from CARPREG and the Zahara scores. How do you utilize these in your practice? And really, what I'd like to know is how do you use these to counsel your patients about pregnancy? 
Well, as you point out, there's several sort of scoring models that are available. I think we have to be mindful that all the scoring systems that we have available have limitations. And uh, perhaps we can touch on those a little later, but it's very important to give an individual approach for the patient. For example, you would think that someone who's had a pulmonary balloon valvotomy who has body's pulmonary regurgitation would have probably a very low risk for pregnancy moving forwards. And you can put her into a category, but supposing her physical exam was different, let's suppose she had restrictive physiology in the right ventricle and her JVP was elevated and her liver was enlarged, then the whole risk scoring system is not really important and relevant for the patient as an individual. So I think they're a useful starting point, but every time we have to do a very careful evaluation of the individual and then give her the risks as we see them so that she can make an informed decision. That's very helpful, Dr. Warrens. Katya, what's your take on this? Sure, Dan. So out of all of this, the modified WHO classification remains the only prospectively validated method for risk assessment and is endorsed by the ACC, the AHA, and the European Society of Cardiology Guidelines for Cardiac Care in Pregnancy. This classification predicts an increasing risk of cardiovascular maternal mortality and morbidity as you go from class 1 to 4 and is based on the underlying cardiac condition. Of course, this is going to be different for an individual patient like Dr. Warren's mentioned. And this risk estimation also needs to be reevaluated during each pre-pregnancy visit because the risk of complications may change over time. And if we see Joyce, for example, in the first visit and she doesn't have these signs of right ventricular failure, but over time she develops them, her risk will change in the next future visit. So at this point, Joyce would fall into a modified WHO class 2 to 3 since she has native valvular disease, not considering class 1 or 4. Her risk using this classification, it's about 10 to 19 percent. But this is probably an overestimation in her case without complications thus far, because we know that the regurgitant lesions are better tolerated than other types during pregnancy, since there's diminished afterload from decreased systemic vascular resistance in this state. Great. Thank you, Katia. Dr. Warren, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, again, I think that's right. Again, as we look at all of these risk scores, I think they're helpful, but they all have limitations. So, for example, when you talk about a risk that an individual patient might have, if you look at the CARPREG score, the most recent CARPREG, for example, they may have an event, but what they don't do is distinguish whether this cardiac event is mild, easily treatable, perhaps a brief arrhythmia, or is it something that's life-threatening? So the risk scores really don't distinguish between the kinds of events a patient might experience. And the other thing I think we have to be mindful of is, for example, if you look at a WHO score of four, the things that fall into that category is something like pulmonary hypertension. But these risk scores don't really reflect differences in risk levels. Eisenmenger syndrome, for example, with pulmonary hypertension is a whole different story from someone who has a pulmonary pressure of 45 in terms of pregnancy. An aortopathy with a Marfan is very different from an aortopathy with a bicuspid aortic valve. So I think they're useful as starting points, 
But again, I think we really have to be mindful that the individual patient needs to be seen by somebody with expertise who can counsel them appropriately. Great. Thank you, Dr. Warren. Those are excellent points, I think, in general, too, about relying too heavily on any one risk stratification method. So thank you. And then getting back to Katia, in Joyce's case, she doesn't really have particular risk factors, but this was particularly striking to me when you were describing her case that she's quite sedentary, she doesn't exercise. Is this something that we should make sure to elicit in the history of our patients, or is this something we should be concerned about? Yes, that's correct, Agnes. Joyce is asymptomatic and well compensated right now, but she's still at risk for atrial arrhythmias, worsening pulmonic regurgitation and right ventricular dilatation during pregnancy. We have to remember that pregnancy is a nine-month stress test. And despite we cannot predict the future completely, during preconception counseling, our risk stratification methods include an objective evaluation of her heart rate response to exercise with a cardiopulmonary stress test. If her heart rate response is inadequate, then we can anticipate that cardiac output will not increase during pregnancy. This will give us an estimation of her current exercise capacity and will provide a baseline for her future assessments as well. Well, thanks, Katya, for that. We many times discuss appropriate indications for stress testing, especially in young patients. This conversation really emphasizes preconception assessment in congenital heart disease as an important indication for stress testing. Dr. Warrens, anything you want to add about risk stratification and pre-pregnancy counseling? Yes, I think Katya made a really important point about exercise testing because, of course, congenital patients have never known what normal is. And I think it's really helpful. They may come and tell you that they have no symptoms at all, that they're perfectly fine. But to get an assessment of really what their functional capacity is on the treadmill can be really helpful. And a rough sort of guide, which is not published, is if patients can do more than 75% of predicted functional aerobic capacity, chances are, all other things being equal, that they may get through the pregnancy successfully. So I think exercise testing is really important in terms of helping decide this nine-month stress test. I guess the other thing is, again, to highlight the limitations of these risk scores. I think every patient really needs a comprehensive evaluation of their functional assessment, the hemodynamics, what the underlying lesion is. And one thing we haven't touched on with the counseling is not just assessing the anatomy and the hemodynamics and so on, But a good starting point is to ask the mother what she's thinking about the pregnancy and what has she been told. So hopefully this patient has been followed and more power to her that she's coming for a pre-pregnancy evaluation rather than presenting in a pregnancy. But what's she thinking about as she contemplates having a pregnancy? I think our job importantly is to help her make an informed decision and promote her autonomy, if you will. But for many of these patients, they may have been told you should never have a pregnancy, often quite incorrectly. And I think it's important that we respect their emotional context of their lives, their attitudes, their their faith, perhaps their expectations. What have they been told? And having that discussion about what the future holds for her. So all that's an important component, I think, of this pre-pregnancy counseling. I myself haven't been in a position to utilize these risk prediction tools to predict cardiovascular outcomes in women getting pregnant, but I have, and I imagine many in our audience have, used ASTVD risk prediction tools like the pull cord equations, and I can't help but notice that there are some parallels. 
The tools are useful, particularly when we are applying them on a population scale, but there are several caveats. They may be reductive by treating variables as a binary variables as opposed to quantifying the degree of something like the degree of diabetes or here the degree of regurgitation, for instance. And, and like Dr. Warren said, they're useful starting points. From there, maybe we go to subjective testing, like for ASCVD risk, if there's uncertainty, we might go to the coronary calcium score. And here, if for our pregnant patients, uh, we might do a stress test because they're not used to pushing themselves and they may feel they're asymptomatic, but it really may be objectively highly compromised. And then ultimately, we need to personalize. And we've seen the push and the move to personalize our ASCVD risk scores. And here, especially because of all the subtleties and nuances and how different patients are with ACHD, the need to personalize is even more paramount. And I think this is where expertise and experience are absolutely irreplaceable, like Dr. Warren's clinic. I think they're really important points, actually. And you see the tragedies of someone being told with a small VSD, and I've seen this, you should never have a pregnancy. And having that consultation where she started to cry, and so I started to cry because I said, you can have a pregnancy, it's going to be fine. And I've also seen the situation where someone with Eisenmenger syndrome was told you can go ahead and get pregnant. So the importance of seeing someone who has training and expertise and these nuances that you talk about are really important. Yeah, I'm definitely taking that to the bank. And I think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways from the ACHD series is we all need to tune in, pay attention, learn about ACHD in terms of appreciating the complexity. But really, the expertise is so important. Speaking of our experts, Katia, we've talked about risk prediction. What's next on our list for the preconception visit? Yes, Amit, we have two patients to care for during pregnancy. And in our preconception visit, we have to highlight not only the risk for the mother, but also the potential fetal risks and take precautions to minimize these risks. We can change medications that could be teratogenic. And we also have to ensure that the mother is counseled regarding heritability risk. Generally speaking, the risk of having congenital heart disease is 1% in the general population. And when the mother is affected, this risk can raise to 4 or up to 10% in the case of left-sided obstructive lesions or atrioventricular septal defects. In cases of genetic syndromes, these numbers will, of course, vary. And a referral to a genetic counselor can be considered during preconception counseling specific cases. In the case of our patient, Joyce, her risk is approximately 4 to 6.5%. And we have to recommend a fetal echocardiogram when she is 20 weeks gestation to rule out congenital heart defect that may put the baby at risk. Last but not least, obstetric and neonatal risks should be highlighted too, including risk for hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, premature birth, and having a baby small for gestational age. Throughout the cardioobstetric series, I really grew to appreciate how you know, we're talking about taking care of not one, but two lives simultaneously and the need to balance the risks and benefits to both individuals. And I especially appreciate that because my wife is a NICU fellow. And so you've got to take care of the baby, the fetus as well. My husband is a NICU fellow too. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in order to wrap up this session on preconception counseling, Dr. Warren's would you discuss key points regarding timing of pregnancy and potentially circumstances in which you would discuss pregnancy termination? Yes, and I think one of the other issues that's important for this pre-pregnancy counseling is whether the risk to the mother will change with time or treatment. So now, for example, this patient 
seems to be doing well. Her right ventricle is happy. It sounds like she has a good capacity exercise test. Hopefully will be positive. But supposing she wants to delay the pregnancy, supposing she wants a pregnancy in five years or 10 years time. So we have to think about whether the risk to the mother will change with time or treatment and a bicuspid valve with aortic stenosis or an aortopathy would be a good example of that. And then whether the risk will change significantly in the next five years or 10 years. And then sometimes the discussion about what the long-term outlook is for the mother. And that's obviously a very difficult and sensitive discussion if you're dealing with complex heart disease. Suppose the mother has something like a Fontan where her prognosis might be quite guarded. They're very difficult discussions for me personally, I'm sure for many of us. You know, we don't have perfect crystal balls. But it's not just, could I or should I have a pregnancy? But am I going to be alive in five or 10 years or 18 years to see my child off to college? So I think they're important considerations. Family history is another thing we need to be thinking about here. Supposing this patient had two family members who had congenital heart disease, that would change the risk to the baby. And there's one thing that's almost never touched upon as we have these discussions And that's whether, not just again, the wisdom of having the pregnancy or the safety of it, but whether pregnancy itself will actually accelerate the mother's decline. And an example of that are those patients with a systemic right ventricle in whom there's fairly good data. For example, after a mustard procedure or a sending procedure, these atrial switch procedures, where the right ventricle gets bigger with the volume load, you may get more tricuspid regurgitation. Again, this is when it's functioning as a systemic ventricle. And you might think that when the baby's delivered and the volume load recedes, that everything will return back to normal. But there's some data that would suggest in about a third of patients that doesn't happen. So again, it's not just the advisability of having this pregnancy, but might it accelerate your decline? And so that's, again, a difficult conversation that has to be had. And when you ask about avoiding pregnancy altogether, these women that are in modified WHO class four, the ones that worry me the most is Eisenmenger is number one, even in the modern era with everything, the drugs that we have available to treat pulmonary hypertension, some of which can be used in pregnancy. That maternal mortality can be 20 or 30%. And we worry about patients whose ejection fraction is down, particularly when it starts approaching 30%. They won't be able to tolerate that volume load of pregnancy. And the symptomatic obstructive lesions, uh, remember that it's not only a volume load of pregnancy we have to consider with the hemodynamics, but there's also a fall in afterload. So if your patient has aortic stenosis, that aortic stenosis will get effectively worse during the pregnancy. So if they're symptomatic pre-pregnancy, they're sure going to be symptomatic during a pregnancy. So mitral stenosis, aortic stenosis, co-optation, all of those are major concerns. And they're the ones we have to counsel against pregnancy unless we can do an intervention to make it safer. Thank you, Dr. Warren. That was an incredible answer. I did wanted to finally, one of the things you've said that I think even beyond what we've discussed, about classification and really going beyond that to actually also have the foresight to think about will there be long-term repercussions from the stressors and and the volume loading that occurs during pregnancy. I think that's one of the pearls I'm going to take from today's discussion, but that was a really nice comprehensive sort of wrap-up for this case. 
And Katya, I'll let you take it from here. Thank you, Agnes. Let's switch gears a little bit and start with our second patient who comes for her first ACHD pregnancy visit. Her name's Bridget. She is a 29-year-old woman in her first pregnancy at 22 weeks gestation who has an unrepaired Epstein's anomaly and presents with palpitations that have become more frequent since becoming pregnant. A year ago, she used to have them only once a month, but for the duration of her pregnancy, they are now present three times a week. She has not been physically active since her pregnancy, but about a year ago, she was able to bike up to 20 minutes a day, three times a week. Her physical exam is remarkable for a heart rate of 76, a blood pressure of 104 over 70, an ultrasound of 95%, a two out of six holocystolic murmur, best heard in the right lower sternal border, and a mild right ventricular heave. An electrocardiogram shows a WPW pattern with a PR of 100 milliseconds, a classic delta wave, and a QRS duration of 100 milliseconds as well. Her echocardiogram demonstrates apical displacement of her tricuspid valve with moderate tricuspid regurgitation, a mildly dilated right ventricle with preserved systolic function, normal left ventricular size and systolic function, dilated right atrium, as well as no evidence of aortic or pulmonic valve disease. A recent 48-hour Holter monitor reveals 20 minutes of narrow complex tachycardia with the fastest heart rate of 200 beats per minute. Her medications include metoprolol tartrate 100 milligrams twice daily and prenatal vitamins. Her labs show normal renal function, hemoglobin of 12, and an anti-pro-BMP of 300 picograms per milliliter. She has read about potential side effects of medication use during pregnancy and is worried about using more medications that may not be effective either. Dr. Warrens, Katja has blessed us with a ton of amazing information and data about Bridget. How would you approach management for this patient with unrepaired Epstein's anomaly and WPW syndrome? I'd like to know what the jungle venous pressure is. I would hope it would be normal. Epstein's is a common lesion for us. We've now operated on over a thousand of them. So we've actually written up our experience of Epstein's in pregnancy. One would hope that in this situation where her moderate tricuspid regurgitation and mildly dilated right ventricle with good systolic function would be a positive thing in her favor. But the big concern now, of course, is that she seems to have an accessory pathway, which many of these patients have, sometimes three or four accessory pathways. And that may be a recurring problem during the pregnancy that may obviously cause important decline. One mistake that people make is discontinuing medications that patients are on when they're pregnant. And this is the situation where I certainly wouldn't do that. It's a pity that the accessory pathway, which we presume it is, hadn't been dealt with before she got pregnant, but we have to deal with it now. The horse is out of the barn, as it were. So I certainly wouldn't want anybody discontinuing her medications. I'd also be concerned... Does she have a PFO? Because, of course, up to 50% of these patients may have a PFO or an ASD. So it might be helpful to know if she desaturates when she exercises. That gives us cause for more concern. And the elevation of her NT pro-BMP is a bit of a source of concern. But I think the most important thing at this point is to involve our EP colleagues so that we have a multidisciplinary approach see if they agree with the medical therapy of metoprolol and make sure the patient understands that this 
would be safer for her to continue during pregnancy and really have our multidisciplinary approach to make sure she gets through the pregnancy safely. So as long as we control the arrhythmias, I'm optimistic that she'll have a good outcome. Great. Thanks, Dr. Wards. I think you touch on a common theme that has also been sort of been threaded in the cardioobstetric podcast series, which is that we shouldn't have this instinct to feel like medications aren't safe in pregnancy and to stop them. It can actually be very deleterious for our patients, particularly this one. Abkadia, what are you thinking about for management for this patient? So Bridget is already on almost max doses of metoprolol. And this is something that really comes up to our minds when we discuss this with our electrophysiology colleagues. We know that classically, beta blockers have been considered class C in pregnancy, with the exception of atenolol, which is actually a class D due to increased risk of congenital malformations. But there are other risks that could be carried with other types of beta blockers, such as selective beta-1 beta blockers or combined alpha and beta blockers, such as labetalol. The use of these medications is preferred because during pregnancy, they have lower rates of intrauterine growth restriction and decreased effects on uterine activity and peripheral vasodilatation. Something that it's important also to highlight so people are not afraid about the potential risk on the future baby is that the attribution of weight reduction secondary to metoprolol use during pregnancy is about 200 grams. And this is unlikely to be clinically significant in the baby. We also worry, because we're cardiologists, that the risk of using beta blocker in a patient with an accessory pathway is possibly AV nodal suppression and potential for antidromic conduction, atrial fibrillation, and degeneration into ventricular tachycardia. I think we have to be very mindful that in the case of Bridget, if things don't work with medications, of course, we have other options like flaconite, for example. But if ultimately, if things don't work with medications, you may have to go the route of an EP study and possible ablation. And if we are considering this, we should also bear in mind that she's still 22 weeks pregnant and organogenesis has finished. And possibly if she were to decompensate or get clinically worse, it would be safe to undergo this procedure, bearing in mind that we have to use minimal to zero radiation. We had a wonderful conversation about management of arrhythmia in pregnancy with Dr. Andrea Rousseau, and I would direct the audience to episode 123 for a deeper dive into this. And totally agree that beta blockers, and particularly metoprolol, may be used when indicated with a lower risk for weight reduction in the fetus, in contrast with something like atenolol, which should not be used and should be avoided in pregnancy. We also discussed some of the procedural interventions for arrhythmias, carries a whole other set of considerations, and Katya, you touched on this a bit also. One of the major considerations in pregnancy is this use of radiation, which can carry the risk of fetal malformations, not only growth restriction, but intellectual disabilities, malignancies, and even neurological effects. These risks are higher where the doses used are above 100 milligrays or 100 millisieverts if we use the conversion factor for x-ray, that is one. And therefore, this procedure should be delayed at least until organogenesis is completed or about 12 weeks of gestation. And of course, this has to be performed at centers that have expertise on this. Now, one important aspect in Bridget's case is the elevated NT pro BNP. I know this is probably secondary to her frequent arrhythmias, and we did end up discussing some of this in episode 111 with Dr. Grima Sharma. But Katya, remind us about the prognostic significance of NT pro BNP in pregnancy. Sure, Dan. 
This is an excellent question and something that should be in the back of our minds when we see a pregnant patient, especially when the NT-ProBNP is measured at 20 weeks gestation. It has an important negative predictive value. When levels are less than 128 picograms per milliliter, we have about 95% negative predictive value for adverse cardiac events. Yeah, it's so useful that it has such a high negative predictive value and can help us distinguish physiologic shortness of breath in pregnancy as opposed to shortness of breath from pathologic etiologies. Dr. Warrens, are there other biomarkers that may help guide us during pregnancy or in the early postpartum period? Honestly, I don't use them very much. As Katia has said, I think the most important use is their negative predictive value. But we have to remember that BNP goes up about twice in healthy pregnancies anyway. So their value as a positive predictive accuracy for an event is really quite limited. So I think you can't beat the good old physical exam and regular follow-up of your patients with echo if you need it. And honestly, I tend to use them very seldom. Excellent. Thanks, Dr. Warren. What I'm learning is to be a, a great congenital heart disease doctor and to take care of pregnant patients, you have to be very sharp on your cardiac and your physical exam. And I think at the end of the day, those are what's really going to guide your management. As we approach the third trimester for our patient, Bridget Katia, what sort of other considerations should we have for this patient? I think the first thing we have to establish is how often we want to see her in clinic. In a patient like her, probably in a monthly basis or even more often would be a recommendation. And she will also need an echocardiographic assessment during each trimester. We also develop a detailed delivery plan in collaboration with the maternal-fetal medicine, anesthesiology, and perhaps neonatology colleagues as well. Our delivery plan should include recommendations regarding anesthesia and analgesia inpatient peripartum management. Remember that not all the OB floors have telemetry and it's different an OB floor than an ICU level of care. The patients may also need a bubble filter in case of shunts. For example, in the Epstein's patients, they may have a chance of having a PFO and therefore a bubble filter will be needed. In patients, for example, who are having left-sided obstructive lesions, we have to be very, very clear to avoid excessive volume load. And there are other considerations that we should also put into this document, including infective endocarditis prophylaxis, the mode of delivery, and what sort of postpartum care these patients will need. If they will need telemetry, labs, echocardiograms, and also what will be her discharge planning and contraception. Despite a common belief that C-section is a safer mode of delivery for women with heart disease, it's now widely accepted that vaginal delivery is preferred in the absence of obstetrics and or fetal indications. Unfortunately, like Dr. Warren said, maybe many patients have been told in the past that if they were to get pregnant, they should have a C-section. And this is another common misconception that happens in patients with congenital heart disease. The more we know and the more evidence we accrue, we now are able to say that vaginal delivery should be considered in most patients in the absence of any other potential complications. In the case of our patient, Bridget, assuming her arrhythmias are controlled and there are no other major complications, we will specify in our delivery plan that a vaginal delivery is recommended in the absence of other fetal or obstetric indications. And I think if we don't know if she has a PFO at this point, it will be important to walk her and see if she decides. But even if she doesn't, I think there is still high for how a young mother have a thromboembolic phenomenon 
through a PFO, and therefore it would be safe to use a bubble filter. We would also recommend a postpartum echocardiogram and avoidance of excessive volume load. Thank you, Katia. You know, our patients with adult congenital heart disease may be susceptible to infective endocarditis because of a variety of reasons. They may have native valvular dysfunction, a variety of prosthetic material. The audience might remember episode 121 from University of Wisconsin-Madison, where the fellows presented a case of a gentleman who had had Schoen's complex and now with a malady valve came in in profound cardiogenic and septic shock with the malady valve infective endocarditis and thrombosis. So, Dr. Warrens, considering the risk of infective endocarditis, what are your recommendations regarding prophylaxis during delivery? Yes, that's a good question, and it's still quite controversial, and it varies in different parts of the world. The ESC guidelines would suggest that no patients need prophylaxis, but I can tell you our policy is really in accordance pretty much with the ACOG recommendations that when we have patients with prosthetic valves or they have prior endocarditis, then we use antibiotic prophylaxis and we use it in cytolytic heart disease. And those who still have prosthetic material within the first six months after the procedure, or if they've got some residual defect that would inhibit endothelialization, they're the ones we reserve it for. And for the others with an uncomplicated vaginal delivery, we don't use prophylaxis anymore. Great. Thank you for that, Dr. Warren. And again, just to briefly summarize Katia's brief point, I love that you pointed out that there may be a mantra that C-section is safer than vaginal delivery, but in fact, vaginal delivery is preferred for women if they're physically able to do it from a congenital heart disease standpoint. I think there's something we could add to, if I may, and that's that for some of these patients, particularly, for example, somebody here, let's say, who's on their beta blockers and let's say the arrhythmias of been suppressed and she's doing well, you still don't want these patients in labor for 48 hours, huffing and puffing and valsalvering and potentially setting off more arrhythmias. So the consideration of facilitated vaginal delivery or a passive second stage, I think it's really important because obviously good pain control, trying to get the baby out fairly quickly, all of those things are important. And, and the last thing we want is more arrhythmias and cardiac decompensation. So around the time of labor and delivery, that's when all the troops need to be assembled. You know, we need this multidisciplinary approach again. And we certainly don't want them languishing in labor for long periods of time. I think that's important also. Yeah, perfect, Dr. Ward. I've had the privilege of sitting in on some of these multidisciplinary discussions and the needs of assisted second stage comes up often. And I definitely see your point with that. Moving on to our third case. This patient is Alicia. She's a 32-year-old woman, G1P0. She's currently at 32 weeks gestation. And she was actually sent to the emergency department from her OBGYN clinic after having severe hypertension. On physical exam, she was noted to have a blood pressure of 210 over 100 in both upper extremities. And somebody very astute in this clinic also measured the blood pressure in her lower extremities and was noted to be 144 over 84. She was also noted to have bounding pulses in her radial and brachial arteries, but one plus pulses in both femoral arteries with brachial femoral delay. And she was also noted to have a systolic clip in her right upper sternal border. A bedside echocardiogram was also performed, and this revealed normal left ventricular size and systolic function, moderate left ventricular hypertrophy, normal right ventricular size and dysson function, 
However, a bicuspidate aortic valve with mild regurgitation and evidence of coarctation based on echo findings essentially of diastolic runoff in the abdominal aortic continuous Doppler was noted. The maximum velocity across the area of coarctation was 4 meters per second. A point-of-care urine analysis was also obtained, which showed proteinuria. And in considering all of these things, she was actually started on IV labetalol and magnesium sulfate, given concerns that she had developed preeclampsia. Katia, what recommendations would you make in this stage of this patient's care regarding her mode of delivery? Thank you, Agnes. So this patient is very, very sick, first of all. We should really be stat right in there evaluating this patient. I commend the physical exam that she's had, noting that a 32-week pregnant woman has a really prominent belly. Being there myself, I knew it was really bad. And being able to examine this break of femoral delay is a plus for the person who's examining her. So kudos to that. The most important fact, and I think we have to bear in mind with her, is that if this initial set of IV labenolol, magnesium sulfide doesn't really work, her definite treatment is delivery. No question about it. In case her labs and blood pressure becomes much more reassuring with time and she gets corticosteroids for fetal maturation, I think a close monitoring of her blood pressure is going to be needed in probably an ICU level of care if she is symptomatic. Let's assume, you know, if she has uh, headaches or worrisome symptoms, you know. Ultimately, the combined evaluation with our multidisciplinary team, including the maternal fetal and neonatology colleagues, is going to be warranted to determine the timing and the mode of delivery based on her clinical response. If we decide to pursue termination of pregnancy and induction of labor at this point, we have to remember that with each uterine contraction, there's approximately half a liter of blood that is released into the internal circulation causing an abrupt change in hemodynamics. Her cardiac output will also increase during this state by about 80% above baseline in a normal delivery. So in this case, I second your thoughts of assisted second stage of labor, especially in patients who have obstructive lesions. And let's assume even if we have a patient with repaired coarctation who presents for a vaginal delivery, we have to be mindful that there are other sections of the aorta that are at risk, including the area of repair and the ascending aorta, for example, in patients with bicuspid aortic valves. Therefore, the use of this assisted second stage will be of benefit for these patients, even if they are not presenting as Alicia in very, very decompensated clinical status. The other thing, of course, with her is that at 32 weeks, vaginal delivery might not be possible. The cervix might not be ready to deliver vaginally. So if she's really in trouble and not responding to medical therapy, then a cesarean section in her might be necessary. Obviously, we have to save mother's life. And of course, the other concern in these patients with co-optation is how's the baby been doing? Because fetal growth can be compromised. So that can be an issue as well. It's another example where Pity they didn't make a diagnosis previously. I'm sure she was hypertensive pre-pregnancy. And as you point out, this aortopathy is also a concern because all the hormonal changes that take place during pregnancy make the aorta more vulnerable to aneurysm formation and dissection. So there's a lot of issues here in this patient in whom the diagnosis has been overlooked. 
Well, thank you so much for that, Dr. Warrens and Katya. And these points are really, really important. And the increase in cardiac output and return of preload were definitely something I had not considered, especially during that postpartum period. And these changes are certainly important during postpartum monitoring in those with obstructive lesions such as Alicia. The volume load from autotransfusion can really set her up for heart failure and pulmonary edema, as we could imagine. In this setting, it may be worth considering transcatheter therapies. Dr. Warrens, have you encountered a situation where postpartum coarctation, angioplasty, and stenting is required? No, thank heavens I haven't. I've had some quite bad coarctations, but fortunately the outcomes for most women is good. This poor lady is going to need an intervention of some kind in the not-too-distant future, but the concerns that particularly apply either during a pregnancy or in the immediate postpartum period are those hormonal changes that take place during pregnancy soften not only the spine and the pelvis, but they also soften the aorta. So when you think about doing a percutaneous intervention only postpartum, you do have a heightened concern about possible dissection and rupture in these patients. So it takes about six weeks or so for the hemodynamics and the hormonal changes to return back to normal. So ideally, you'd like to avoid that either during pregnancy or early postpartum period to do an intervention. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Warren. That's another excellent point I'm going to take away from this episode and one I really hadn't considered before. Just as an aside, you talk about the hormonal changes to the vasculature. Curious to ask you, in cases of spontaneous coronary artery dissection, something we know is associated in the postpartum setting for women, not necessarily with congenital heart disease. Do you think there is something about the changes in hormones that make this patient population, that postpartum pregnancy, particularly susceptible to that? Yes, that's an interesting question. I mean, obviously the cardiac output changes and the stroke volume may play a part, but does it relate to progesterone and estrogen? That's one of the ongoing theories that maybe makes it more common in the peripartum period. So yes, I suspect there's a hormonal contribution. Yeah, great. Just uh, continuing on the topic of hormones, Katia, which contraception method would you advise for her, assuming that she's really got to undergo some transcatheter repair of her coarctation prior to considering future pregnancy? Sure, Agnes. So we all know estrogen-containing contraceptives have the greatest risk of thrombosis and they also increase blood pressure. So we would be saying no-no for this type of contraception. In patients with pre-existing hypertension and in others at high risk of thrombotic disease, we would also be saying no-no to this type. So that's first line. In second place, progesting-only contraceptives have little to no effect on coagulation factors, blood pressure, and lipid levels. Therefore, this could be our best recommendation. And in here, we have different options. We can talk to her and see what is her preferred option, something that is longer term, such as a levonorgestrel-loaded intrauterine device or an implant, or if she wants to not be under these medications for a long time, like three years, if she wants to have something shorter duration, like a depot injection, or even consider oral desogestrel. I think those are certainly good options for her. Yeah, and I would humbly add that some women may choose to undergo tubal ligation. And on the topic of tubes, for those who are in a committed and monogamous relationship, their partners having a vasectomy is also an alternative. Can I just challenge that thought, though? Because, again, if we think about 
some of our complex patients and we think about having their partner have a vasectomy, I think that requires a lot of consideration because supposing the mother's prognosis is guarded and limited, supposing she has, again, a Fontan or something or an Eisenmenger situation, but then you sterilize the partner and in worst case scenario, she passes away and the spouse wants to marry again and have a family, then you've ruined that possibility. So I think that also requires a lot of consideration before you think about sterilizing the partner if he doesn't have congenital heart disease. Dr. Warrens, you can challenge me whenever you'd like. <laughs> but that, that was uh, such a great point. Thank you for adding that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I think you all brought up such wonderful points. I have so many sort of pearls in my mind I'll be taking away from this episode. And really, just to wrap up, we've, again, discussed so many aspects spanning from preconception care to the antepartum care of these patients, including both non-invasive and invasive management and considering potential complications. Dr. Warren, can you give us perhaps three takeaways for us to remember? Just like in your Mayo Clinic videos, there's RV dilatation, find the shunt, right? That's something I'll remember forever. But for caring for ACHD patients in pregnancy? So probably number one, the importance of pre-pregnancy counseling and the detail that that involves, the history, the exam, the imaging, the exercise test and family history. And I'm reminded of that, especially this week, I'll digress a minute, but I saw a patient with repaired tetralogy of fallow as one of our most common repaired cyanotic heart diseases who had had four miscarriages and was now pregnant again at 20 weeks with a pregnancy now viable but getting short of breath. And her local cardiologist had written in the note, I'm quite persuaded that her cardiac situation has had no impact on her four miscarriages. And I'll do another echo and we'll see what's happening. And she'd had no follow-up care in the center for 10 years, no dental care for 10 years, and... When we did have fetal cardiac echo at 20 weeks, the baby had tetralogy of fallow. And of course, she has 22Q11 depletion, which has a 50% risk for the baby. And there's a strong family history in an aunt, a cousin, and somebody else in the family who had congenital heart disease. So all of that that's embraced in pre-pregnancy counseling. And always remember one point to add is remember to get the partner's history too. I remember spending about two hours with a patient who had a mustard repair of detransposition. And then at the end, I said, what about your partner? Does he have any congenital heart disease? And she said, no, he has something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but that's not genetic. So I think all of that that's involved in pre-pregnancy counseling, as we've discussed, is important. I'd say the exercise testing, again, very important. And remember that these risk scores are starting points and involve the pregnancy heart team, figure out where the patient's going to deliver, how they're going to deliver and tailor the management to the specific needs of the patient. Perhaps a high point to end on is that the good thing is most patients with congenital heart disease can have a pregnancy safely as long as they're managed properly. And I think that's the good news. But this multidisciplinary approach throughout the trimesters and around the time of labor and delivery is absolutely key to get a good outcome. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Warren. And I will just reiterate your high point at the end there that I think 
having experience and knowledge about these patients really enables you to have those amazing conversations where you say, hey, in fact, you can get pregnant and have a safe pregnancy and I will help you through it. I, I will take that story about your VSB patients and I can just imagine being in that room with her and how delighted she was and how lucky she was to have you as her provider. Can I finish that story? Yeah, absolutely. So about a year ago, one of my colleagues said, do you need a feel-good moment in your day? Come to my office. So of course I did. And there was sitting two women, one older, one younger. And the older one looked at me and said, you may not remember me, but I came to see you for pre-pregnancy counseling. And she said, I had a VSD. And I said, I think I remember. And the 20-year-old that was sitting there was the daughter that she had delivered. So, oh my God, I got that. Really was a feel good moment. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Dr. Warrens, I have uh, goosebumps right now. What a wonderful, lovely, and marvelously spectacular and comprehensive discussion we all just had. A question we ask all our experts, faculty, and I guess we probably know your answer, but Dr. Warrens, what makes your heart flutter about devoting your life's work to the care of patients with adult congenital heart disease? Oh my goodness. Everything. I mean, I talked about the clinical component of it, which I love imaging. The fact that most of the lesions that our patients have are treatable. There's a lot of research and knowledge still needs to be done. So it's still a very exciting specialty for me. And perhaps one of the things we've touched on today are the patients themselves. I mean, they are so incredibly courageous. They want to be normal. They want to work. They're generally, I think, really uncomplaining and so deserving. And they, I think in the cardiology community as a whole, they get the worst care. And as we've discussed today, they want to have pregnancies and be normal like the rest of us. So I think that's just such a rewarding specialty. In fact, just yesterday, I received an invitation to somebody's wedding. She's 25 years old and I've taken care of her mother for a very long time and I helped in the delivery of the lady who's inviting me to the wedding. And so, you know, it's such a great joy and a privilege to have this long-term care of what ends up being a whole family. I really feel um, blessed and my heart is still a flutter after so many years. And to all the other congee nerds out there, I wish you a fantastic career and I hope you have as much joy and thrilling times as I've had because it's been fantastic. Wow, Dr. Warren, so beautifully said, and I'll share what's making my heart flutter. It's your stories of your patients. It's this whole discussion that we've had today, and it's your commitment to the field and to your patients. And I'll add that congee nerds are some of the best cardio nerds. We're developing such an appreciation for the field of ACHD. Katia is such a broad field with so many overlaps, with so many different subspecialties. We'd love to hear as an ACHD fellow and a burgeoning expert in ACHD, what are your career plans moving forward as you develop into the congener you already are? Thank you, Ahmed. <laughs> yes, I can consider myself a congener now. <laughs> or as Dr. Snapperville <laughs> would say, a unicorn. <laughs> yes, uh, one patient asked me last week, so what are you? Are you a fellow? Are you a resident? Are you still in medical school? You look so young. And I'm like, oh, thank you for that. But I'm actually a unicorn. <laughs> And he didn't know what to say. I told him, yes, this is a very kind of newish field, but with so much history, so much inspiration, so many trailblazers that have been in this history for so long. 
starting from Dr. Ross, Dr. Blaylock, Dr. Tausig, and then Vivian Thomas, who has an amazing movie, by the way. Everyone has to watch it. And there's also so many people like Dr. Warrens and my current ACHD attendings here at UCLA who dedicate so much of their time and are invested in education, in clinical care, in research. And it really just pushes me every day to improve. We are all cognizant that despite the long history of ACHD, we are also trying to move the field to the next stage, to the next level. We have to be cognizant that the surviving population is now bigger than the pediatric population with congenital heart disease. And we all have to learn how to care for them and how to help them get to the best potential they have. This is also important to highlight that we not only have patients who have survived that much in developed countries, but also in developing countries. And we have to all fight to get minoritized groups and patients in developing countries to get the care that they need. The idea of having multidisciplinary care and working together with other specialties in order to improve the outcomes of all of these patients, regardless of where they are, and helping them reach their potential is what motivates me in my everyday work and nurtures my desire of continuing contributing towards the development of the ACHD field in Peru and across the globe. Yeah, Katya, that was absolutely beautiful. And I want to call back the mention of the incredible stories and the history in ACHD. We learned from Eugene Brunwald as part of the Brunwald Chronicles about just how they were learning to percutaneously size ASDs so that Dr. Morrow would know whether or not he could take the patient to a surgery to repair it with a quick procedure. And I have to say the movie you were referring to, something the Lord made about Vivian Thomas and Helen Tosig and Blaylock, I cry every time I watch it. So I would recommend that for everyone. And we are just so inspired by these stories and these tales that in the Cardiners Academy, we is divided into four houses and two of the houses are namesakes, uh, House Tossig and House Thomas. So I couldn't agree more with you there. There's also great surgeons in the field like Dr. Castaneda, who recently passed away. And he was a leader in congenital heart surgery in Boston, but he took the courage to go back to Guatemala and found the first congenital heart disease clinic there and give really a chance to the children from Central America and many from South America too. So it's inspiring. It's full of joy. And I think everyone should really get into congenital heart disease at some point. I love that. Thank you so much to everybody for joining us today. And we look forward to speaking more about congenital heart disease in future episodes. And we hope that you all join us as well. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Karen Stout. I'm an ACHD nerd at the University of Washington in Seattle. I'm a member of the Medical Advisory Board with the Adult Congenital Heart Association. Not long ago, congenital heart disease was widely considered to be an exclusively pediatric field, given the short lifespan of our patients. However, advances in diagnosis and management have transformed many patients' lives and brought them into adulthood. There are now more adults living with CHD than children. This growing population requires a specialized and personalized approach from multidisciplinary teams. While not every cardio nerd will specialize in ACHD, you will all have the opportunity to touch the lives of adult patients with congenital heart disease, recognize their unique needs, and refer them to the appropriate centers if and when needed. 
We need both trainees eager to care for this patient population and non-ACHC providers to have fundamental knowledge about these conditions for optimal practice while working in tandem with board-certified adult congenital heart disease providers. We congratulate the Cardio Nerds on their mission to democratize cardiovascular education and for creating this series to raise awareness about ACHD. I'm glad to say that this episode and all others in this series are brought to you in collaboration with the Adult Congenital Heart Association. ACHA's mission is to empower the CHD community by advancing access to resources and specialized care that improve patient-centered outcomes. The Cardio Nerds have clearly done that here. If you'd like to contribute to ACHA to provide educational resources, opportunities to connect with other providers, become a part of the Medical Advisory Board, or apply for ACHA research funding, please email info at achaheart.org. Again, email is info at achaheart, all one word, dot org. If you're interested in learning more about clinical congenital heart disease diagnosis and management, please note that there are free educational online resources available through Heart University and the Congenital Heart International Professionals, or CHIP, networks. Both have tremendous resources to provide further depth to your understanding of ACHD. You can find more about the ACHA, CHIP, and HeartUniversity.com in the episode description on the CardioNerds website. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.